so I'm back with another video. I think I'm gonna just uh, have this one be on Wednesday. So that's when you're, if that's when you're listening, you might have thought that, oh, where did the Kierkegaard video go? Um, I don't know. I think I'm just gonna keep pushing it back because um, I only made those videos in preparation for the Twitter spaces with Dr. Amber Bone, which was magical and amazing. Please go to the Philosophy in the Spotlight YouTube and listen to it if you didn't get a chance to um, participate and be there on September 25th. But, um, I don't know, we've been talking about a chair, hermeneutics of charity, and I really want to ascribe to that, and I think that, you know, with fear and trembling, I had such a, I have such a struggle on my own with the text and the Abraham and Isaac story that I'm just not sure how helpful it will be. Um, and like what I can offer to others and it was really more just a personal thing me working through it so this is what we're doing today <laughs> and um, yeah so let me know if you if you do want to I don't know hear my rambling more on the first I guess few sections of fear and trembling and the supplemental materials because you know I will like leave it on for the schedule uh, at some point but otherwise it just felt like maybe I don't know it wasn't something that I don't even know how to explain it <laughs> so anyway okay so we are going to return to Beyond Chopin what I thought I would do today is um, go on to you know I was talking about the disappearance of rituals which I is continues to be one of my favorite uh, essays of Byung-Chul Han, but I'm moving on to talking about beauty and aesthetics today. And the title of this book is Saving Beauty. Um, so just to kind of summarize, basically Byung-Chul Han feels that we need to save beauty because thinking about the content that's created, thinking about even the art that's becoming popular and how, uh, and the design of various items that we can, that we can buy. Um, it's all becoming, he says, very non-intrusive, non-confrontational. Um, everything's made to be super likable and pleasing. And, uh, and so there's, so, so he critiques this. Um, also thinking more about like selfies and social media content and even the conversations or the exchange that happens. Um, he says that everything's becoming really explicit and transparent. People are, encouraging themselves almost to uh, to to share you know their deepest feelings and their thoughts and who they are online you know kind of like that you know I, I remember when not everyone had them but like the phenomenon of the webcam came out and now people are kind of making these really aesthetic vlogs about you know what it looks like when they wake up and their morning ritual and they're sitting down in front of the camera and just talking about their their life, their hopes and their fears and struggles, etc. And so that's kind of the informational side of sort of putting everything out there on the table. And then visually, um, he says the selfie and the pictures basically when he's thinking about I I think he's probably thinking about Instagram, for instance, the pictures that people put out um, kind of also lay whatever, you know, those, those pictures are showing bare. So the selfie is, you know, your face straight head on um, with, a, you know, and there's a limited range of perhaps of reified expressions that people give in their, in their selfies. 
Um, so there's nothing that's really inviting you to reflect or linger or dwell. Um, no one really like returns to a selfie again and again, not even the person that posts it. A selfie is there to gaze on for a few seconds and then if you are the viewer, you're kind of scrolling to look at the next profile and if you're posting it, you know, you're going to just post another one in the next day or soon after. So you're accumulating these pictures, not necessarily um, to have any lasting or repetitive effect. Re repetitive in the sense that you're looking back at it. So it's not like what we post on Instagram would necessarily, and of course we can't generalize, I would argue that some people would want to print their Instagram photos and maybe in-frame them, put them in frames and put them on the wall and because their memories, etc. You know, I think one of the things about Byung Chul Han is that he, he comes from a very specific position which almost feels a little privileged and also he doesn't really create space for counter arguments in a dialogue. He just kind of has his ideas and he clarifies them not very much, you know. He doesn't necessarily explain, he just makes his argument and it's it's there. So he doesn't necessarily create space, I think, for nuance all the time, a lot of the times, or for alternative perspectives, you know. So, uh, so I think that it tends to be sort of generalized and biased in a sense, until he or unless he kind of defends his position, but I don't think he's super interested in defending. He just kind of says what he says, which I don't know, makes me feel as if I can always think of a, an exception to what he's saying or um, just not understand like what world he lives in at all. Um, so uh, so there's a lot of things with uh, Byung Chul Han, what he says about beauty, I agree with, and there's some things I don't agree with. Like for instance, the transparency and just laying everything out, um, you know, in vlogs or confessions or, or whatever it is. I think that a lot of people, you know, when I look in the comments to those videos, a lot of people are, feel grateful and, and are glad and feel liberated and saved by the, the sharing of consciousness, the, the, well, the raising of consciousness, by the sharing of stories. You know, you feel that when someone's talking about their anxiety or their depression or how they just, you know, are feeling lost in their life or whatever it is, um, you know, people who are watching the effect of that, and I think the intention of that is to, is to share and help people feel not alone, like so alone. And I think that in our increasingly isolated individualistic states of existence, um, you know, we need that. And if we can get that through the virtual space, then, you know, it's better than nothing. <laughs> Um, so he doesn't really take account for that. He also calls the um, the content, the visual content that people are putting out pornographic. And I don't think he just means that in a sexual way. I think he means that, for instance, that particular genre um, of literature or film or whatever it is. Um, you know, people would, some people would argue that it takes out sensuality there's no like narrative or story or anything that really seduces it's just there and it's kind of graphic and i feel that there are some elements some aesthetic elements of art that he feels is missing um that is is lacking and so he can't feel compelled by the other he can't feel confronted and transformed by the other and i think the way he talks about the other is slightly problematic um because it seems like and this is going to be my sort of caricature of, of what i feel this sort of speaker's voice is is sometimes i feel like Byung Chul han is like this kind of privileged 
comfortable, bored playboy who just like wants a manic pixie dream doll to kind of give him adventure and excitement. Like he wants the other to seduce him and like make um, the relationship or the encounter almost painful so he can feel something. And I just, I just feel like that's a little bit of a problematic demand for the other. You know, we can't really, it's kind of like saying to the other, like, you need to stir me, you need to make me feel something. I mean, the other doesn't need to do anything for um, for us or for you or whatever your positionality is in that. You know, there's been a lot of feminist literature about exot, like, making, exoticizing the other and making the other, the foreignness alluring, um, but that's also kind of reducing the other and not allowing the other agency and to speak and all its and all their complexity its complexity whatever if you're talking about like an entity or a person um and it almost feels like appropriation you know it's like what you want what you demand and that's it feels like sometimes when i'm reading this especially saving beauty that's kind of what's happening although i would love beyond johan to explain or clarify or disagree with me about that um it's just sometimes i just don't understand what kind of world like he like he's asking about not just in saving beauty but other works he asks about you know there's no against there's no negative it's all positive and over producing toxic positivity but also um demanding a presence from individuals and others and there isn't any pain there isn't any suffering there isn't any contention and argument and i just think okay um most people don't want more pain or suffering most people have enough have their fill most people in the world i feel and not all circles are like this you know I guess I'm biased and I always say that I feel like the academic circle and intellectual circles even on social media like my YouTube channel and the Twitter spaces that I'm a part of, those are kind of spaces marked out for congeniality and we're all on one side seeking the truth and enjoying talking about meaningful aspects of the human predicament and you know it's not so divisive but I would say in many circles and spheres you can just look at the comments that people are making in the virtual world or in whatever form of media you consume and it seems divisive i mean we wouldn't have cancel culture in a culture that is leveled down to politeness and sameness and likability and affirmation right i mean it feels like, to me, um, when I look out at the public spa space, especially like in the states where I come from and where I am and exist currently, it feels like people are just unhappy and arguing with each other all the time. So I don't understand this world. But, you know, don't take it from me. I will start. I'm going to start with just chapter one. I just wanted to go over the... The chapters so you can kind of get a sense of this book so chapter one is the smooth and that's I guess that's the other thing he talks about the specific character of smoothness um, which is reflective which is pleasing which doesn't really require a sort of nuanced response and you can think of this in sort of like Instagram's the filters where the filters are making our faces like pleasing and smoothing out our you know whatever is on our face and you know like he talks about this Jeff Koons uh like these sculptures along with iPhones this is going to be in his first sentence and Brazilian waxing we're just like putting a filter over everything and it making everything smooth but then I just wonder what is the harm in it? artistic expression of all kinds experimentation of all kinds to make things pleasing to make things beautiful like doesn't beauty have a range doesn't beauty have diversity and difference it doesn't need to seduce all the time it doesn't need to cause a confrontation it doesn't need to jar you or cause a transformation it can i don't know if i said transformation twice but um probably said it many times um i just i just wonder i don't know i mean i 
I think so many people have beautiful Instagram pages that and YouTube channels where they're doing vlogs and maybe it's not quote-unquote real because they're putting the camera up and then going back to bed and then waking up um, or maybe they're putting a camera and then dancing in a forest or whatever but I mean I just think it's so interesting this critique on sort of art slash entertainment that has been around since you know Plato as Republic and talking about how you know the poets and the artists need to defend themselves because we all like it but it's damaging you know our mindset um, Kierkegaard talking about advertisements and you know just various philosophers have always been suspicious and found of and found suspect entertainment that is aesthetically pleasing because it's not real it's fake it's you know whatever but I don't think that any of us would really want you know everything to be and I don't necessarily think this is the only other alternative or this is where he's going but you know what I see in the world is commodified pragmatism utilitarianism I look at the buildings in the states and they're not beautiful they're not they weren't created they were created to lower to cut costs and for profit they were not created for human enjoyment and well-being and satisfying needs you know just think about the lack of window and maybe your office space if you are not privileged in that way um or just how how sterile and mundane parking lots are everywhere you know we've cut down all our trees there's not it's such a different experience when I go to Europe like for instance when I go to Ireland and there's so many trees and everything is beautiful and everywhere you drive everywhere you go it's just it is a fairy tale it's so because nature has been allowed to exist you know it's not as easy to drive there most of the time um you know when you're going down these narrow roads and you really can't fit two cars going the opposite way but you have to and someone has to kind of pull over and stop and you know there are there are ways that allowing nature to proliferate and allowing our habitat to be natural and organic and flourishing um, inconveniences human beings. But everything is, is kind of a, like a, everything has a sacrifice to it, right? And there's pros and cons to everything. But I don't know, I don't think he would be against like beautiful architecture. And maybe he would find maybe we're actually just saying the same thing but in different ways he would also critique the the use value architecture of the states by saying it's pornographic because it's just there's no mystery it doesn't make you dwell you know so 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 i don't know sometimes i just um want to ask Bianchuan some questions <laughs> that's really all it is okay so 18 minutes in let's just start this is the smooth page one the smooth is the signature of the present time it connects sculptures of jeff coons iphones and brazilian waxing why do we today find what is smooth beautiful beyond its aesthetic effect it reflects a general social imperative it embodies today's society of positivity. And I think he means positive both in like the colloquial sense and then just the, sorry, there's like screaming out on my, in my hall, apartment living, um, and, and a lack or an absence versus a presence and kind of the push to production and accumulation, et cetera, would be like positivity. What is smooth does not injure, it, nor does it offer any resistance. I mean, I can see resistance, but do we really want to be injured? I mean, this is this is where I just feel like, I don't know, Byung-Chul Han gets a little like, what is it? BDSM, is that what it is? <laughs> just, I don't know. It's like, why this obsession with being injured and feeling pain and wanting to suffer? 
<laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know, but that's maybe that's just the difference. There are some of us in the world who, um, you know, want, would choose Brave New World over 1984, and, and, and I'm one of them. I'm, I don't mind, you know, the Soma. Just, where is it? Like, give it to me. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, Byung Chul Han probably would hate me because I also feel a little called out. I don't know if I want the world that he, he longs for, honestly. But I, you know, I've said many times in my mind in imaginary conversations with him that, you know, we could just trade places. He can live in my one bedroom apartment and I will live in whatever beautiful garden-like Zen housing that I imagine him to live in. Um, you know, I'll go live in Europe and be invited to various conferences and lectures and he can, I don't know, <laughs> not to downplay my life. I mean, I'm getting out there in the community, don't get me wrong, um, and enjoying academia, but I don't know. He just, he, it reminds me of that video of the heir of Johnson & Johnson, the documentary that he made of like himself and all his friends and how they were just so bored because they had everything. You know, I mean, that's why I think there needs to be an exchange program between the rich and the poor. Let us just like have a little adventure for, I guess there are reality shows already about that. So no new ideas here. It is looking for like. The smooth object deletes its against any form of negativity is removed. The aesthetics of the smooth is also adopted by smartphones. The LG G Flex, which I have no idea what that is, is even covered with a self-healing skin, which makes any scratch that is any trace of an injury disappear within the shortest of times. I mean, this sounds awesome. I don't see, I don't see why I would critique that. It is invulnerable, so to speak. The artificial skin of this smartphone keeps it smooth at all times. It is also flexible and bendable with a slight curvature so as to perfectly follow the contours of the face and back pocket. This adaptability and absence of resistance are essential characteristics of the aesthetics of the smooth. Smoothness is not limited to the outside of the digital apparatus. Communication via a digital apparatus also appears smoothed out, as it is mostly polite remarks, even positivities which are exchanged. Okay, Fianchal Han, where in the world is positivity ruling that, or not even positivity, politeness? Polite remark. Where are you seeing the polite remarks? Maybe Byung-Chul Han gets too many polite remarks. I don't know, but, and it's not like, you know, I'm speaking like, it sounds like I'm personally, um, like, I don't know, wounded by, <laughs> and I'm not. I have, I also have a very, I would say, or somewhat privileged, um, I don't know, group of people around me, like-minded people. I, I love all the people around me. Um, and, and, you know, we are polite to each other, but it's wonderful and it's lovely. And I, <laughs> I don't want to be in a non-polite world. I'm just saying that probably, again, you, you're not going to have cancel culture in a society of politeness. That's all I have to say. Sharing and like represent communicative means for smoothening. Negativities are eliminated because they represent obstacles to accelerated communication. And I guess I can see this. See, this is where I would love more examples. I mean, he's about to give an example of Jeff Koons again. But I mean, I guess that's where I come in, right? So I guess if I would try to argue and see from his side with, on that point, accelerated communication, I guess it does seem quick, you know, when people are, when we're commenting on each other's posts, even on whether it's Twitter, whether it's even on YouTube, you know, is there, what I want is, is a conversation. I want there to be, I love responding to YouTube comments and I love being challenged and engaged and, you know, that's really, that's really wonderful, but I guess I can see um, that there's probably much more on the internet, you know, quick, it's like you, you drop a comment and then you leave. Like to me that, and then you go to another video and drop a comment and leave. And I guess that could be an example of accelerated communication. 
I don't know. Bianca Han just needs to talk more about like Twitter. Okay, Jeff Koons, arguably the most successful living artist at present, is a master of smooth surfaces. Andy Warhol also professed his commitment to beautiful smooth surfaces, but his art still had the negativity of death and disaster inscribed into it. His surfaces are not entirely smooth. This series, Death and Disaster, for instance, still lives off negativity. In Jeff Koons' work, by contrast, there exists no disaster, no injury, no ruptures, and no seams. Everything flows in soft and smooth transitions. Everything appears rounded, polished, smoothed out. Jeff Koons' art is dedicated to smooth surfaces and their immediate effect. It does not ask to be interpreted, to be deciphered, or to be reflected upon. It is an art in the age of like. And I don't know if I mentioned this because I sort of started making this video before and then deleted it. Um, <laughs> for mundane reasons. Um, it is true, I guess, about the like. I mean, YouTube has made dislikes private. So, you know, you can't see how many dislikes, only how many likes someone has. I like that, <laughs> you know? I mean, maybe I'm just a pathetic person, but I think it's nice to be encouraging and I don't think that it's helpful to be pro poked and prodded, separate those sounds phonetically, um, into, into disliking something. And not even disliking, I think that's such a, a weak term. Um, I think that a lot of times when we are on, you know, Reddit or wherever we dwell on the internet, in the virtual spaces, I think a lot of times there's the there's a tendency to want to make a mark, to get some attention, even if it's, you know, from a negative, saucy comment. Um, and we want to protect our reified ego in attack and defense and I think that when the dislike sort of count was public people are so much more apt to to press dislike you know like what is the point of pressing dislike if no one gets to see it right you're making a point and I feel that is is so toxic for all of us for all of us to be tempted to to put you know to to put our comment to put our critique like here this is my power this is the only I mean really it is an indication that we feel very powerless today in our world most of us do that our only act of power is you know our violent actions which there is some kind of sorry I'm adjusting the, the bobby pins that are pulling at my hair like a caught spider web um oh my goodness I'm gonna have to deal with this I put it in during class like I was looking at myself in Zoom as my students were staying after, which is inappropriate, I'm trying to fix my hair. Okay, so, um, why do I say things out loud? Um, you know, I think it, I think it uh, digs at a primitive need to exert power, even if that power is harming someone else and showing them you know, making them submit through our mighty dislike. I, I think it's, it's actually healthier to be in an age of like, if that's what that means. Jeff Kuhn says that an observer of, an observer of his works should only admit a simple wow. It seems that his art does not require any judgment, interpretation, or hermeneutics, no reflection or thought. It intentionally remains infantile, banal, imperturbably relaxed, disarming and disburdening. It has been emptied of any depth, any shallows, any profound sense. Thus his motto is to take the observer into your arms. Nothing is meant to shake, injure, or shock the observer. Art, according to Jeff Koons, is nothing but beauty, joy, and communication. Okay, so I agree that it shouldn't be only beauty, joy, and communication, but I don't 
why can't something be a non-articulate experience of feeling and sensation? I can imagine walking around a huge Jeff Koontz sculpture and inflecting and dwelling and being allured by its size and, uh, you know, its reflective qualities and just its smoothness, you know? I mean, I don't think that any particular element is necessarily offensive in and of itself. His smooth sculptures cause a haptic compulsion to touch them, even the desire to suck them. His art lacks a negativity that would demand distance. It is the positivity of smoothness alone that causes the haptic compulsion. It invites the observer to take an attitude without distance to touch. An aesthetic judgment, however, presupposes a contemplative distance. The art of the smooth abolishes such distance. Haptic compulsion and the desire to suck can only arise in an art of the smooth that is devoid of meaning. Hegel, who emphatically held on to the arts being meaningful, therefore limited the sensual in the arts to the two theoretical senses of sight and hearing. They alone have access to meaning, while smell and taste are excluded from the enjoyment of art. I mean, but why? I mean, I mean, we have to question that, right? I mean, I'm not just gonna take, that just sounds, sometimes I think arguments sound really random, you know, unless they're, unless we understand the, the defense of them. So, so only sight and hearing have meaning, but smell and taste are excluded from the enjoyment of art. I mean, maybe that's just because art hasn't advanced to smell and taste. I mean, it could. Or maybe, you know, you give me examples of, of it being. I mean, why, why are we privileging certain senses? I just, that doesn't make sense to me. Why are we being exclusionary? The latter are only susceptible to the agreeable, which is not the beauty of art. For smell, taste, and touch have to do with the matter, with matter as much and it's as such and its immediately sensible qualities. Smell with material volatility in the air, taste with the material liquefaction of objects, touch with warmth, cold, smoothness, etc. The smooth only conveys an agreeable feeling, which cannot be connected with any meaning or profound sense. It exhausts itself in a wow. I mean, is this just an argument of like high and low art? In his mythologies, Roland Barthes points out the haptic compulsion, which is triggered by the new Citroën DS. It is well known that smoothness is always an attribute of, okay, no, I do. Okay, is always an attribute of perfection. Because its opposite reveals a technical and typically human operation of assembling, Christ's probe was seamless, just as the airships of science fiction are made of unbroken metal. The DS-19 has no pretensions about being smooth, as smooth as ice caking, although its general shape is very rounded, yet it is the dovetailing of its sections which interests the public most. One keenly fingers the edges of the windows. One feels along the wide rubber grooves which link the back window to its metal surround. There are in the DS the beginnings of a new phenomenology of assembling, as if one progressed from a world where elements are welded together to a world where they are juxtaposed and hold together by the sole virtue of their wondrous shape, which of course is meant to prepare one for the idea of a more benign nature. As for the material itself, it is certain that it promotes a taste for lightness in its magical sense. Here, the glass surfaces are not windows, openings pierced in a dark shell. They are vast walls of air and space with a curvature, the spread and the brilliance of soap bubbles. Jeff Koon's seamless sculptures also look like brilliant, weightless soap bubbles made of air and emptiness. Like the seamless DS, they confer a feeling of perfection, of lightness in a magical sense. They embody a perfect and optimized surface without depth and shallows. For Roland Barthes, the sense of touch is the most demystifying of all senses, unlike sight, which is the most magical. 
I mean, again, this seems random. Why? You know, I can argue for the exact opposite. I can argue that the the sense of touch is mystifying, and it is, and I and I will in a second. The sense of sight keeps a distance while the sense of touch destroys it. Without distance, there can be no mysticism. Demystif demystification lets everything become available for enjoyment and consumption. The sense of touch destroys the negativity of what is wholly other. It secularizes what it touches. In contrast to the sense of sight, touch is incapable of wonderment. Really? I don't, I don't know. I'm gonna need to be convinced. The smooth touch screen, therefore, is a place of demystification and total consumption. It produces what one likes. I mean, okay, so I just think of, I mean, what about touching someone else's skin? Like, I mean, just any kind of touch. Touch is, is the most, when I'm thinking of, like, bodies touching, like, it seems like the most intimate, sensual thing that, you know, you could have. And it's, it's very mystical. It's like, why do our bodies feel like this when we're touched? I mean, I think we've all, you know, brushed someone's hand and it felt like fire on our skin. You know, why does that happen? It's, that's mystical and magical. So, I mean, maybe he's not including the touch of, you know, another person, but I think like that needs to be addressed if you're gonna have this argument and be at all convincing. Jeff Koon's sculptures are as smooth as a mirror, so to speak, allowing the observer to see him or herself mirrored in them. On the occasion of the exhibition uh, at the Baylor Foundation, he remarked on his balloon dog. The balloon dog is really a wonderful object. It wants to confirm the observer in their existence. I often work with reflecting mirroring materials because they automatically raise the self-confidence of the viewer. Of course, in a dark room that doesn't work, but if you stand right in front of the object, you are reflected in it and assured of yourself. I mean, I'm not sure when I see my reflection, I feel self-confidence, <laughs> but you know, I'm glad, I'm glad if some people do. All right. I mean, that wouldn't be my experience, but. The balloon dog is not a Trojan horse. It does not hide anything. There is no inwardness hidden behind its smooth surface. As in the case of the smartphone, you only encounter yourself and not the other when faced with the highly polished sculptures. The motto of Kuhn's art, the core is always the same. Learn to trust yourself and your own history. This, that is also what I want to convey to the observer of my work. The observer is meant to feel their own love of life. I mean, that sounds lovely. Like, I don't know. Jeff Kuhn sounds wonderful. Um, he just wants people to feel like his art is giving them a big hug. I mean, what's, you know, we could use more of that, I'm thinking. Art opens up an echo chamber in which I assure myself of my own existence. The alterity or negativity of the other and the alien is eliminated altogether. And I mean, I understand that... You know, like Zizek talks about, I think it's maybe the film that I haven't seen called Melancholia. I feel like everyone talks about it. And you know, the, there's a big catastrophe um, and uh, there's like basically like an apocalyptic catastrophe coming on where I guess an asteroid or another planet is coming into contact with our planet and this woman who this character in the film who I guess has lots of anxieties or has depression or is suicidal or something like in that moment when she is about to be annihilated she's saved you know it's the it's the it's the encounter with the sublime it's an event that that makes one die to oneself kind of like the Christian mystics and so they emptied their vessels to be filled with God to be filled with something greater than themselves and so I love that I think I didn't say it like I loved it but I do I think that that's gorgeous and that's wonderful and I understand how those of us who are wrapped up in our own you know destructive selves 
kind of need an ex to, to encounter an external other that is destructive in order to you know somehow paradoxically save us even if it's for you know seconds before the planet you know collides into our own so you know so so that statement speaks to me i don't know what else i wanted to say about it jeff coon's art possesses a soteriological dimension it promises salvation the world of smoothness is a culinary world a world of pure positivity in which there is no pain no injury and no guilt the balloon venus sculpture shaped in birth position is kuhn's holy mary yet she does not give birth to a savior a homo dolores with a crown of thorns whose body is covered by wounds but to champagne a bottle of dom perignon rose vintage 2003 which is 2003, I don't know why I say years like that now, which is inside her belly. Jeff Koons presents himself as a Baptist promising salvation. It is no coincidence that there is a sequence of images from 1987 called Titled Baptism. Jeff Koons' art practices a sacralization of the smooth. He stages a religion of the smooth, the banal, even a religion of consumption. In their service, all negativity is to be eliminated. For Gadamer, negativity is essential to art. It is its wound. It is opposed to the positivity of the smooth. There is something there which shakes me in inner turmoil, which questions me and appeals to me. You must change your life. And so, you know, I don't want to be misread about filters. I never, because this just makes me think. You know, um, you know what what benefit is there, or what harm is there in this kind of art that's being critiqued? Um, I neither judge nor necessarily celebrate filters or editing or you know any of that. I mean, I do think it's obviously it's problematic. Do I have to even say this? It's problematic that, you know, people might have a distorted body image and develop body dysmorphia because of the unrealistic, the assumptions that what they see is real. And it's, it, you know, I mean, but it's before filters. It's before, like, it's, it's just before not everyone got to do it. Before you would only see, you'd only make those assumptions when you saw models in magazines, right? And the Photoshop, which again has been critiqued. And, you know, I mean, should in a sense, I, my only thought is that like there should be transparency. But again, you know, with that take away the mystery, like Byung-Chul Han wants mystery um, and not transparency. But I, I think that the it's only damaging when you are manipulated into thinking something is not real. And you are not, you don't have any, you no longer have agency in participating. I mean, that's why people enjoy going to like horror films. They're particip they have agency. They're participating in the suspension of belief to engage and, you know, allow the film to make them feel scared or shocked or something like that to stir them. But when you are deceived, I guess, um, you're no, you no longer have that agency and you're no longer participating in the fantasy or the enjoyment of the ideal or a sense of beauty or whatever it is. So, so I just think it needs to be modified. I don't, I mean, how can we, like, where do we draw the line in art, right? A photographer tries to manipulate and capture the, the essence of the beauty of, you know, a light post in the rain by kind of looking at the light and the shadows and darkness and, and you know, sort of treating the color and the, the hue, the intensity, etc. I don't know. I just... 
I tend to be want to be a little more open-minded when it comes to people who are who are making choices about the content that they put out. Not that I don't want to critique it if it's harmful, but I just think a lot of times we can start to judge um, unfairly and it kind of just goes back to like, you know, the stick in your own eye, you know? I feel like sometimes when we're judging, we're not critiquing the phenomenon, but we are, we are policing other people's behavior and their actions. How is it already 45 minutes? <laughs> I'm on page six. Okay. Um, okay, so you must change your life. It is the fact that a particular thing such as this exists that constitutes the additional something. As Rilke says, such as things stood among men. This fact that it exists, its facticity, represents an unsurmountable resistance against any superior presumption that we can make sense of at all. The work of art compels us to recognize this fact. There is no place that fails to see you. You must change your life. A push comes from the work of art. It pushes the observer down. The smooth has an altogether different intentional nature. It adapts to the observer, elicits a like from him or her. All it wants is to please and not to knock over. Today the beautiful itself is smoothed out by taking any negativity, any form of shock or injury out of it. The beautiful is exhausted in a like it. Aestheticization, that was a word that gave me trouble before, aestheticization, that aestheticization turns out to be anesthetization. Am I saying that right? Anesthetization. I think I'm missing a syllable. It sedates our perception. Thus, Jeff Koons' wow is also an anesthetic reaction that is diametrically opposed to the negative experience of shock, of being knocked over. Today, the experience of beauty is impossible. Where the wish to please, the like edges its way into the foreground experience, which is impossible without negativity, withers. Smooth visual communication takes place in the form of contagion without any aesthetic distance. The unbroken visibility of the object at the same time destroys the gaze. Only the rhythmic oscillation between presence and absence, veiling and unveiling, keeps the gaze awake. I mean, that's an interesting idea. I'm sort of big on like shifting positionalities as a way to mitigate the harm of certain orders. The erotic also depends on the staging of an appearance as disappearance, on the undulations of the imaginary. The pornographic, uninterrupted presence of the visible destroys the imaginary. Paradoxically, it pre presents nothing to see. And I can kind of understand that. Um, I mean, maybe it is good advice for better content on social media. Today, not only the beautiful, but also the ugly becomes smooth. The ugly also loses the negativity of the diabolical, of the uncanny and terrifying. And it is smoothed out a formula for consumption and enjoyment. It lacks entirely the fear and terror inducing gaze of the Medusa, which petrifies everything. The ugly that was used by the artists and poets of the fin de siècle possessed something the fin to seek um it's like a phrase that i've heard all my life and then i just i just never paid attention i think possessed some i think it's like fin to seek i don't know possessed something abysmal and demonic obviously i the surrealist politics of the ugly serve the purpose of provoc provocation provocation and emancipation it marked a radical break from inherited patterns of perception. So there is a possession of something abysmal and demonic. 
It served the purpose of provocation, provocation, and emancipation. Bataille saw in the ugly possibilities for overcoming boundaries and for liberation. For him, it offers access to transcendence. No one doubts the ugliness of the sexual act. Just as death doesn't sacrifice, the ugliness of the sexual union makes for anguish. But the greater the anguish, the stronger the realization of exceeding the bounds and the greater the accompanying rush of joy. The essence of sexuality, according to this, is excess and transgression. It delimits consciousness. This is what constitutes its negativity. Today, the entertainment industry exploits the ugly and disgusting, making it consumable. Disgust is originally a state of alarm and emergency, an acute crisis of self-preservation in the face of an unassailable otherness, a convulsive struggle in which what is in question is quite literally whether to be or not to be. The disgusting is the non-consumable par excellence. The disgusting has an existential dimension also for Rosencrantz. It is the other of life, the other of form, putrefaction. gosh, I've always said it like that. Now I'm seeing the word. Putrefaction. Is it putrefaction? A corpse is a scandalous phenomenon because it still has a form, although it is in itself formless. Due to the still, I wonder if Pyeongchul Han just like loves Charles Baudelaire. Baudelaire. I just wonder. Um, the disgusting is the infinite repulsive evades any form of consumption. The disgusting, which is today presented in the Shunglicum, lacks any negativity that might. Footnote 15. What is that German word? Oh, jungle camp. Okay. The German equivalent to I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I, I, don't, I don't know. I still don't understand. Lacks the negativity that might trigger an existential crisis. Oh, the argument to like want us to be anxious. It is smoothened out into a form for consumption. And I'm going to stop there, although... I'm very interested in the next part, which talks about Brazilian boxing. <laughs> All right, so we'll stop there. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, Byung Chul Han does make me think, right? Oh, we're almost finished. We don't know what time. Um, because Anchor says I only have 60 minutes. All right, thank you everyone if you listened to that. Um, you know, I think that I'll probably continue reading this because I don't really think we get into all of his, you know, argument just with eight pages. So, so yeah, so hopefully I can do a few more videos um, and we can get into it a bit and really understand or try to understand what he's saying in his perspective. But have any thoughts about what was read today or um agree or disagree with anything um just let me know and i will respond thanks everyone see you next time